Welcome to the Sound on Sound podcast. Welcome to the November Sound on Sound podcast, which is a little late because Hugh and I have been over at the AES show. So uh, here's Hugh to say hello. Hello. I'm Paul White, the editor-in-chief of Sound on Sound, and I was also at the show. And so this podcast is going to take a slightly different format in that it's going to be totally unscripted. And we're going to tell you about things that we saw at the show. But first, he would like to remind you a little bit about Sound on Sound's social networking, which is something to do with TubeFace and, and, and Twitter book or something. Yes, we have some social media feeds, which is what you're supposed to call them, I'm told. You can find us on Twitter, which is at SOS Publications. Or you can find us on Facebook, which if you go to facebook.com, it's slash SOS Publications. So all you need to remember is SOS Publications, and that'll get you there. And on our Facebook page, we have a YouTube channel. And on that, you can find all the videos that we've just shot at the AES convention in New York. And you can also find a video of highlights from our November issue made by Jules, who is one of our editorial team and our video specialist. Thank you. Well, we're not going to put any news in this podcast because you'll find far more up-to-date news on soundonsound.com. So pop up there now and take a look. It's true, but we ought to talk about what we saw at the AES show, didn't we, really? So what excited you, Paul? Well, Waves have a new plug-in called the Bass Rider, which is a little like their vocal rider. It's an alternative to a compressor in that it writes level automation in response to the incoming level of a signal. But unlike compression, which tends to change the envelope of a sound, this works on a note-by-note basis, identifies note starts, and and then tries to balance the level of different notes so you can get fewer side effects and more levelling. That sounds like a good plan. I saw a thing at Lynx Technology. It, they've shown it at previous shows, I think, but it was quite uh, prototype-ish at those shows, which was the Hilo converter. And that's a really neat little box. It's a two-channel A to D and D to A, but the controls were all done through a, a touchscreen panel on the front. And because of that and the way they've designed the thing, it's very, very configurable, and it's still a kind of work in progress, I think. But it looks like that could be a really, really powerful machine. The other thing I saw, which is a small box, but I think with a big future, is a new version of the cloud lifter from Cloud Microphones, this one with a variable input impedance, which is particularly attractive to those using ribbon microphones. Yeah, that goes up quite high, doesn't it, on its impedance range, which is unusual. I think it goes to 15k, is it? Yeah, that's right. I was quite taken with that. Quite interesting. Radial had a lot of interesting things as well. They always do. I like that company because they come up with proper engineering boxes. Uh, They had a passive monitor controller which was quite interesting, very simple, but very neat, well-designed. And they've got plans for another one, which I was talking to them about, which will have all of the typical kind of BBC monitoring controls that are always absent on so many monitor controllers. So that should be good to look forward to. And, of course, the highlight of the show, once again, in terms of publicity, was um, Pro Tools 10. Now, not only does this have some genuinely useful new features, but they've also launched a new piece of hardware, which now works on floating-point arithmetic rather than fixed-point arithmetic, so that their new plug-in format, the AAX format, can run the same plugins native as on the hardware. It's going to give some people a little bit of a headache catching up with all the plug-in conversions, but I think it'll make life much easier in the long run. Yeah, I was quite amused, really, because it seemed to please as many people as it angered, didn't it? Pro Tools 9 came out only last year, uh, and now this is a complete radical new change and everything's... I mean, the whole TDM plug-in thing is, is going to be phased out now. And, uh, and it's a major revolution, but it kind of brings them up to date with everybody else and brings a lot of new facilities, I think. And even though people do have to upgrade their old hardware for roughly the same price, you're getting five times the processing power, so it's not all bad news. That's true, yeah, absolutely. So did you go to see any interesting events while you are at the show, Paul? Well, on the first day, I was asked to sit on a panel which was critiquing some of the students' coursework. 
and there were some rather good pieces submitted, but again with some problems. I mean, given that a lot of these people were working with top-range Neve consoles, API preamps and whatever else, um, it's nice to know that some of our readers are producing just as good a results in their bedrooms. That's quite heartening. How about you, Hugh? I went and sat in on a lecture about the loudness wars. This is something that they've been doing pretty much every year for the last three or four, where a, a panel gives a roundup of where we are in, in the whole loudness war thing and how things are developing. That was very interesting. Nothing really new to report, but interesting developments and interesting observations about loudness in general, and in particular the adoption of the new loudness metering standard, which I think will make a big difference if only we can get everybody to agree to adhere to it. The broadcast industry are going to, the film industry more or less already have, so it, there's a lot of promise there, but whether we can get the music industry and mastering in particular to stick to a, a loudness matched format instead of a peak level matched format, it's difficult to know. But if it goes that way, it will be a good thing generally, I think. Well, I didn't get to any of those sessions because I had a couple of interviews to fit in. The first was with Alan Parsons, who's uh, always got a lot to say about things. And in this particular instance, he was uh, talking about the background to this DVD set he's done, which is the art and science of sound recording. And this took him three years in the making. It's uh, basically a series of DVD masterclasses, which is available in the SOS store. And some of the material that was produced during the making of that masterclass has now become uh, commercially released material, in fact. So he may be starting a new album using those as the basis for that. There were some great musicians on there. And I think what most of the students learned is that Alan uses very little processing when you compare his results to theirs. I mean, for example, um, he got the best bass drum sound ever with no EQ and no compression. Just got the right mic and put it in the right place. Yeah, the old skills are always the best, aren't they? I sat in on a, another lecture from a Norwegian company. You can find them on the web, www.2l.no. And uh, they specialise in recording surround sound, mainly classical music, some jazz, but they do it in a very interesting and very novel way, which I've not come across before, uh, where basically they put you in the middle of the orchestra, but it's not just done by dumping the microphones in the middle of the orchestra. It's very, very carefully thought out, and they analyse the construction of the music and how the different sections of the orchestra play out, uh, and they arrange it in a very, very careful way around the microphones, and it's just stunningly good beautiful recordings and it just works so well i was really really impressed well worth checking that out if you get a moment yes indeed in fact that's another thing i was talking to about alan is the uh, slow take-up of surround sound i still think that as soon as we get some kind of surround sound headphones that actually work then the whole thing will take off overnight but until then it's going to be pretty slow what do you think I think probably the moment's come and gone, to be honest. Uh, the car market's probably a good place for surround sound, because at least in the car, the designers know where you're seated, where each of the passengers is seated, and can optimise the sound that way, and you're kind of a captive audience in a car. But domestically, you know, putting that number of speakers in a domestic situation is always going to be difficult. And uh, DVD-A has virtually already died a death. Super Audio CD isn't doing particularly well. Um, the company I just mentioned, the Norwegian company, most of their sales seem to be through downloads and they do very high quality downloads uh, in surround sound using FLAC or you can actually download direct high resolution WAV files. Uh, and it seems to be that the kind of niche market that are interested in that are prepared to download those kind of large files and, and that's the way it seems to be going. But again, I think it could change if we get to surround iPod that works. Yeah, absolutely. It's just whether somebody can come up with that kind of technology. Uh, surrounding headphones is always a bit hit and miss, isn't it? The ones I've heard so far anyway. Yes, indeed. Anything else interesting that you saw in the way of uh, seminars or sessions? No, that's pretty much it, really. But I think we ought to say that the show itself was actually very strong. I was a little bit sceptical when we went. I thought it might be a fairly weak show. Uh, the European AES was particularly weak. 
because of the recession and things, I thought the American one might be a bit on the feeble side. But actually, it was it was a good show. It was busy. It was quite big. Uh, an awful lot of people there. And everybody seemed very, very positive and upbeat, which I thought was very encouraging. Yeah, that's very true. I really enjoyed it. Uh, the other thing I enjoyed was taking a trip over the river to see the um, Electroharmonics factory, which is far, far bigger than anything I thought that they would have. And it's run by a very enigmatic bloke called uh, Mike Matthews, who uh, you can imagine him tinkering with the flux capacitor in a DeLorean. He's got that kind of demeanour about him. But he's one of those rare geniuses that knows about the products and he also knows about business, which is how he set up his valve importing business by buying a Russian valve factory. So uh, we're going to have an interview with him in the near future. And they've got some extremely interesting products coming out. They let me have a look in the R&D section, but they did say they'd have to kill me if I said anything, so uh, I'll not say anything. (laughs) Good stuff. Okay, we've got some questions here that have come in from Twitter, and there's one here from Indaba Music who asked, does size matter? Uh, But I think he's talking about microphones, and specifically diaphragm size. Well, I'm sure you know more about this than I do, Hugh, but technically speaking, the smaller the diaphragm, the more accurate the microphone can be off axis, whereas the larger the diaphragm, the more air movement is translated into mechanical energy so that you can end up with a a lower noise if you design it correctly, but at the expense of some off-axis response. Also, the larger diaphragms tend to have some kind of resonant coloration, which can be minimised in the smaller ones. So I'd say that where you're after sonic purity, the smaller diaphragm mics are the ones to go for. And when you're after a bit of a flavour, the larger ones. But this is only a generalisation, of course, isn't it, Hugh? Yeah, it's always a compromise. So the swings and roundabouts, really, as you get smaller in diaphragm size, you get less output, more noise which can be an issue going larger in diaphragm size obviously you get a bigger area to pick up the sound wave so you get a stronger output so the signal is stronger than the noise so large diaphragm mics tend to be quieter than small diaphragm mics but as Paul says you also have a lot of off-axis issues with large diaphragm mics where the spill coming in from the sides tends to be a lot more coloured the frequency response off-axis is much less even on a large diaphragm mic and it's much more even on a small diaphragm mic. So it depends what you, what application you're trying to use the microphone in. Uh, I think in general, the sort of optimal, the best blend of all characteristics is probably for a medium-sized diaphragm, something in the sort of 18, 20 millimetre kind of region, somewhere around there is probably optimum. Uh, and that's your typical pencil stick mic size, really. Large diaphragm microphones also have an issue with high frequency response uh, because the diaphragm size starts to become... Uh, similar to the wavelength of high frequency sound, 20 kilohertz and so on. So you start to have a limit as to the high frequency response. Small diaphragm microphones will go much higher in frequency, much smoother. So there's lots of swings and roundabouts, and it's all about choosing a microphone that has the right kind of colour and characteristics for what you're trying to do. So the generalisation is is probably not a bad one. You go for the smaller diaphragm mics for sonic purity, and the larger ones where you actually want the microphone to be part of the creative process. Yeah, I think that's a good generalisation. James Ryan asks, is guitar fret buzz a creative decision? He says, I don't mind a bit, but I've heard high-profile albums with very high levels. Hmm, interesting question. It is a creative thing to a degree, but actually it's also a performance thing, isn't it, really? And how good your guitar player is, the better the player, the less fret buzz you're going to get. Well, it's certainly a case that with steel string um, acoustic guitars, a certain amount of fret noise and, in fact, finger squeaks are part of the sound. 
it's not so much an artistic choice really as as a playing artifact and most players will try to minimize it but if you take it out altogether then it starts to sound as though you're putting the thing together from samples which is why ironically some of the sample libraries include all these noises that you can put back in to try and convince a listener that you're actually hearing the real thing but i i suppose when it comes to is it is it art or is it right or is it wrong i mean anything is art in theory you could take just fretbuzz noise throw away all the music and make some kind of music concrete album out of it and it would still be an artistic choice personally i would try to minimize fret noise where possible because it does kind of get in the way it can be quite intrusive and i think if the noise starts to detract from the music itself then obviously that that's a, a bad thing one important consideration of course is that if the guitar is heavily compressed or if it's an electric guitar with a lot of overdrive or distortion then any n- physical noises such as finger squeak and fret buzz and indeed amplifier hum are going to be exaggerated and they will therefore be part of the sound because if you hear a live performer using similar effects that's the kind of noise they make yeah yeah that's true Okay, here's another question then. This is from Peanut Turner. What an interesting name that is. I wonder who gave him that one. Anyway, his question is, uh, what's the best way to keep your band in time with a backing track when playing live? Well, you do a lot of live playing and you do some backing track stuff as well, don't you, Paul? So what's your technique? Well, it doesn't really apply to me in that sense that when I'm playing to backing tracks, I don't use a drummer. This is when we're doing our techno kind of stuff. We use a computer and the answer to that then is good monitoring so you can actually hear what's going on. And if you can set up a separate track, which is rhythm heavy, and feed that to your stage monitor, that really helps. If you're playing in a traditional band with a drummer, then the first thing is to have a drummer who's very good at playing to a click track and to make sure there's plenty of click through the headphones. And my own preference is to use a simple drum groove rather than a click because it's easy to follow. The problem with a click is that the click usually falls on the same beat as a snare drum, in which case when you're playing in time you mask it. And the only time you actually hear the click clearly is when you've gone out of time. Mm, yeah, that's very true. And the other thing, of course, is clicks are, are quite an unnatural sound and tend to carry a long way. Uh, and you don't really want that. Even from headphones, you can get quite a lot of spill from clicks. Whereas if you have a rhythm track as such, you don't tend to notice the spill so much, which also helps. Well, I think it's probably less important live. The spill from headphones from a, from a live drummer is going to be pretty negligible. It's just the sound of the click. It's pretty unnatural. Mm. And... There's always a chance of hearing damage because it's quite loud. I always find it's a bit like sharing a crash helmet with a woodpecker. <laughs> I've never done that, but I'll take your word for it. But no, I think that you hit the nail on the head in the first place. I think it's uh, it's really all about good monitoring. If you can't hear the backing track, you're never going to be able to play in time. Uh, it's just the same as any live situation. You need to be able to hear everybody in the band properly in order that you can all keep in time with each other. So it's really just about good monitoring. Also, if there are any tempo changes in the track, some kind of uh, audio cue in there to let someone know that it's coming up would probably be a good thing. What do you mean by that? Well, if the drummer's having it, you could even have a verbal cue, like, it's on the next bar, mate, you know. <laughs> oh, interesting. OK. Never tried that idea. I think I might phase some of the drummers I've played with in the past. You never tried talking to drummers. <laughs> Send the messages in crayon, usually. <laughs> Harsh, but he was a drummer, so he was allowed to say that. I can like say that, that yes. I, I was a drummer before I took up a musical instrument. Uh, the old ones are always the best. Now we've got some snippets from some interviews for you to have a listen to. And also we had a short conversation with Hans Zimmer, which we'll be putting together as a separate podcast for you. But first of all, Hugh, what have you got for us? Well, just before the AES show, I went over to uh, Sonic Distribution and had a look at the new 
SE egg loudspeakers, which are quite an interesting design, very innovative in, in many ways. Uh, and I talked to James Young, who's one of the company founders and, uh, and a very strong advocate of this new design, uh, and also Andy Munro, who did most of the design work and development work on them. Uh, so you can listen to that now. I'm here with James at Sonic Distribution talking about the new egg speakers. James, what's the story? Well, basically, it's a completely unique system, something that we've been working with Andy Munro on for about two years now. And we wanted to come to market with something that was aesthetically very different, but also had a, a real raison d'etre, something that was going to technically set it aside from everything else that's on the market. And to cut a long story short, we think that we've achieved that very successfully. It really reveals a lot of information that's usually missing in speakers, either because of smeared frequencies or because of interference stuff that's going on in the cabinet. And we've resolved for the first time on a mass production scale all of those issues. Mm-hmm. The speaker system's built in the same kind of way that we build our microphones, so everything's hand-assembled. All the circuit boards are handmade in-house. The speaker drivers are our own SE drivers, based on a, uh, a system by Monocore that was produced a few years ago, but we had to rejig for our own uses. So with the hand production that goes on in-house, the ethos is very much the same as the microphones. In other words, we wanted to bring to customers something which was absolutely the best that we could make it, but at a price point that was still affordable. So with our system, we're really competing against speakers that cost three, four, five thousand pounds upwards, mm-hmm. but we're doing it at less than two thousand pounds, which is exactly what we do with the mics. Our mantra is kind of we try and build Neumann quality mics at mid-market prices, and it's the same with the speakers. And on the back of that, we're able to offer what we think is some of the best customer service that you can get from a speaker brand. So we have the best warranty that's available on the market, and it reflects what we're doing with our microphones at the moment. There are a number of issues with speakers which revolve around the fact that most people will only have one decent set of speakers in their studio. Mm -hmm. And if they go down, then you have to wait for several weeks for them to be repaired. Then you have no studio for several weeks. It's kind of the same with the high-end microphone as well. So with our mics, we've developed a zero downtime replacement warranty for three years, where for any reason other than deliberate damage, um, a microphone fails within the first three years, we'll replace it with a brand new model, no questions asked. We're going to do a similar thing with the speakers, but because our speakers are individually calibrated, so the left and right speakers are calibrated to a specific amp, obviously we don't want to, and we couldn't feasibly from a business point of view, replace a complete system just because a driver had blown. Sure. So what we're basically doing is if somebody blows a driver or if something uh, develops a technical fault, we will send out a free loan system to the Mm -hmm. end user to use while we're repairing their bought system yeah and then when we return their repaired system to them still under warranty we retrieve the loan system back again and it's the same as the se warranty so that's for three years now on top of that we've come to realize that people are very easily swayed by manufacturing warranties which say that they give five years or ten years or whatever and when you look at the small print on those warranties those are for manufacturing defects and we know as a manufacturer that if something's going to break down because of a defect in the manufacturing process, it is not going to take nine and a half years to do it. It's going to do it within the first year or so, at most. So in order to convey to people the fact that this three-year zero downtime warranty that we do on our speakers and our mics is a lot better than just giving a five- or ten-year warranty, we're now going to do both because then it takes away any of the smoke and mirrors that are being put out there by the manufacturers. So on both our mics and our speakers, we're offering a 20-year manufacturing defect warranty and we're offering the three-year zero downtime replacement or repair warranty. Right. And that applies to all the mics, the stands, the reflection filters, the peripherals, and the new SE Monroe monitors. And we're able to do that 
because we build things properly. We do it by hand. We don't use mass automated production. We've got skilled engineers for every part of the process and mm -hmm. so that we know our products are coming out of the factory as good as you can possibly make them. It's fantastic. I don't know if anybody else that does that at all. No. No, I don't think there is. <laughs> and with your microphones, if, if people are interested in the microphone, you do a, a deal where they can they can try one uh, and buy it after. Are you going to do the same sort of thing with the eggs? Yeah, we're also going to offer a free loan service, which is something that we started, I think it's probably not unusual in some industries, but in the audio industry, nobody was doing that until we started doing that through our distribution company about eight, nine years ago. And so on all the mics, past a certain value, we don't do it for the very low end stuff because it would be too expensive, but past about £400 then people can borrow them for a week to try in their own studios. And the same is true of speakers. Now, with speakers, that's especially important because mm. I can tell you, and I'm sure you know this, if you walk into a retailer, however well they're set up, that's no listening environment to decide on what speakers you Absolutely. want. Absolutely. So we're happy to put our money where our mouth is and not rely solely on branding and marketing and say to people, if you want to try this system out, we're so convinced that it's the best system out there mm -hmm. that we will send it to you free of charge for a week. If you don't like it, we'll pick it up free of charge if you do like it, it'll go through a dealer channel and you buy it. Simple as that. Fantastic. Yep. Excellent. Thank you, James. Thank you. And here's Andy Munro to give us some more detail. Well, fundamentally, it's an anti-diffraction device. I think that's about the best way of putting it. Okay. Getting rid of corners gets rid of wavelength-specific diffractions. So you get a smooth, even diffraction over the whole spectrum. That's the idea. So that the power response of the speaker isn't influenced by the boundary conditions and that means that the sound going into the room has a more even spectrum. And if you've got an evenly designed room, then you'll get the same thing back again. Mm. So you get this balance between the direct sound and the reverberant sound. And a lot of people have been quite sceptical about it for a long, long time, thinking, well, how much difference can a box make? But in fact, it makes a big difference. And even I didn't realise how much difference until we actually built one mm. and heard it. You're oh. saying a lot of the data for this goes back to the 40s. Yeah, it does. The original research was done way back, but the first scientific study was done by Olson. And he took a driver and put it into lots of different shaped boxes and actually measured the response and then published the paper. Mm. And that was the paper I, I looked up. And it shows quite conclusively what the effects of the boundaries are. Mm. And, and people have known about it for a long time. They just didn't do anything about it, basically. Yes. Well, people sort of dabbled with it, but nobody actually said, OK, what we've got to do is make a totally curve boundary mm -hmm. in all planes not just the front back or whatever but yeah, all of it all of it and that's how it started but what we didn't realize until we actually built it was how much effect it would have on the internal performance of the sound as well you get a much more homogeneous pressure field inside the box or inside the egg and that has the effect of the re-radiated energy coming out of the base ports much smoother mm -hmm. and we don't get this kind of slightly lumpy base that you with people associate with reflex ported loudspeakers yeah. And I've never, I've never been a huge fan of transmission lines, but one of the advantages in theory is that you get this smooth transition through the LF. Um, but I think you get that with this, plus the added bonus of all that energy coming out actually in phase with the base driver. Mm -hmm. So you get considerably more output from a, from a small box. Yes, certainly goes down a, a long way for such a small thing with plenty it, of power. Yeah, it goes down very low, and it's got enough power and punch to actually act as a, as a decent-sized main monitor, mm. even though it's not very big and not particularly powerful either but what you get you get a lot for your watts yes basically because the downside of, of needing to keep to your egg shape is that there isn't space to put the electronics inside each no, cabinet no we thought about that we thought it's, it's too much of a compromise it, it, it gets out of that the pure egg shape zone very very quickly and also it uses up volume and for the size of the driver this is still quite a big 
enclosure, the volume of it's quite big. I can't remember the exact figure. Um, but um, but the point is, why use up that volume with amplifier when you really need it for air? Sure. And to put everything in a separate box has its advantages as well, because you can put the box more or less wherever you want. Mm. You've got a three-meter set of cables. It's a four-way cable on each speaker, so it's bi-amplified in the amplifier control unit. Mm -hmm. And that gives you a fair bit of flexibility. You can put it in a rack or right on top of your uh, mix position, and you can twiddle with the EQ to, to an extent that you might want to from the front panel. And also you've got input switching as well, so you yes. have source mm -hmm. monitoring select, yeah. which is quite useful in a small self-op studio. Mm. Um, so yeah, we've taken advantage of the fact that it's an external unit rather than treat it as a as an inconvenience. Yes. And, and there's something about speaker cables. I miss speaker cables. <laughs> <laughs> and there are plans for smaller ones and possibly a bigger one as well. Yeah, the smaller one is well on its way. In fact, it's sitting in that box right there at the moment. What you can do with the smaller one is, is treat it as a truly um, near-field speaker. In other words, it can be virtually in your face, very, very close up if you wish, mm. or, or not. Um, but obviously it'd be less expensive, a bit less powerful. Remarkably good bass response still. The principle still seems to hold up, even right. with the smaller eggs. And that, that was quite surprising. Uh, we were quite surprised by the bass response of the big ones, but we were even more surprised by the bass response of the small ones, actually. Uh -huh. It really is remarkably uh, punchy for a small box. Punch is well above its weight, right. as you might say. The bigger one is still in development. We're not quite sure whether we're going to go two-way or three-way on that one yet. Okay. Um, but the electronics won't take too long. In, in some respects, it's easier to build a, a bigger speaker th than a smaller one. Mm -hmm. You just have more power, and you can do things with it that you perhaps wouldn't do with a smaller one. The smaller one we try to keep as pure as possible. The bigger one, we do recognize that you, you have to introduce some compromises, some electronic compromises, because bigger speakers don't behave as well as small ones simple sure. as that yeah but people need power and sometimes you need a very loud system so that's that's what the bigger ones will be for okay just louder not better given how loud these are i tried to think how loud the big ones will be then <laughs> loud enough <laughs> loud enough thank you very much no, you're Thanks. welcome cheers well that's pretty enlightening and uh, a good reason why speakers shouldn't be square shaped i suppose Well, that about wraps up this Differently Shaped podcast for this month, but we hope to see you next month a little more punctually, as there are no shows in the way. So it's goodbye from me, Paul White, and it's goodbye from Hugh. Bye. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thank you.